Understanding the deadliest natural disaster in U.S. history. Why no one evacuated for this deadly storm. What three engineers designed and built to protect the coast. And the choices when evacuation is not an option. This is NTWC. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to NTWC Live for, what is this, Wednesday, September the 6th. Here we are, going into the peak of hurricane season, just about there, and it's pretty active out there. We'll get to that in a little while, but today I think we're going to spend some time, I know we're going to spend some time, uh, going back, looking at uh, one significant historic storm and and talking about what we've learned from that and, and how that plays into what we how, how we handle disasters today and how we respond to disasters today. Before we get to the program, though, we want to thank our sponsors who are part of this program each and every week. First of all, USAA. Thank you, USAA. We, we couldn't do this without you. You've been part of uh, the Storm Science Network and the National Tropical Weather Conference from the very beginning, and we appreciate your support. The South Padre Island Convention and Visitors Bureau. South Padre Island is a host every year for the National Tropical Weather Conference. We'll be back there again the first week of April 2024. We invite you to join us in person. Registration, early registration is now open on the website, hurricanecenterlive.com, so check that out. Also want to thank the Weather Company and Weatherboy, uh, proud sponsors of NTWC Live and all we do here each and every week, and we always have good programs. And that's in big part thanks to our, our hosts, Dr. Hal Needham and Bill Reed. Uh, Bill, we'll get to your hurricane update in just a little while, but Bill Reed, former director of the National Hurricane Center, good morning. Is it uh, dew point about 90 in Galveston County in Houston, where you are this morning? It was 78 when I last checked, but it's been like that since June, so it doesn't have the uh, impact it used to have. <laughs> it gets old. I, I sacrifice some kind of a, to a totem to the air conditioner every morning to make sure it still works. <laughs> well, it looks like there's no end in sight, at least for where I am in South Texas, the same for you. So um, have at it. I think it's going to be a great program today. I'm looking forward to hearing from Dr. Laura Myers, everything she has to say. So why don't you go ahead and set us up, Bill? Good morning. Great. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, yeah, we're going to uh, focus totally on this storm and some of the ramifications that, that are still relevant today based on that storm. Uh, I'm going to give a brief overview of the meteorology of the event with some of the side notes on it and then turn it over to Hal, who properly introduced Dr. Myers. And then we'll talk about the evacuation issues. So we'll find it. And... Uh, it up there we go uh 1900 storm it uh, for those of you that are did not really uh, follow these kind of statistics it still is the largest uh, loss of life in a natural disaster in the uh in the uh, uh, uh landfalling storms that affect the us by quite a margin as you can see there uh it was a Cape Verde storm. We're going to be talking about another Cape Verde storm Lee, here in a little while that's uh, active today. And at this, all this track is reproduced on the careful studying of ship reports and things like that that were available uh, way back in the day uh, 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 to, that, uh, to that time. And it stayed a tropical storm. Most of its uh, trek, all of its trek across the Caribbean. And it wasn't until it got in the Gulf that it, it did crazy things. Does it sound familiar? <laughs> that seems to be a lot of uh, history of our big storms in the Gulf. Uh, some facts that they're on the 1900storm.com website. The, the elevation at Galveston Island was uh, below nine feet at the highest level back then. They've raised it when they built the seawall and raised the elevation uh, so that they at least some of the town it stays dry with a similar type storm. Uh, the official peak storm surge uh, was 15.7 feet. Uh, Again, uh, they they post a six to eight thousand number on the fatalities. Uh, uh, my good friend Ed Rappaport did a, 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 an extensive study of this event and estimated it probably was in the eight to twelve thousand uh, range. It just uh, we'll never know for sure, but the, it needless need to say it was an unbelievable tragedy. Uh, it would certainly be awful by today's standards. Uh, population in Galveston was 37,000. It's somewhere around 60,000 now. Uh, uh, most of the buildings, all the buildings had some kind of damage, and, uh, and the majority of them were actually destroyed by the storm. They had to rebuild uh, everything uh, uh, seaward from the center line of the island. A debris dam down the middle of the island probably helped preserve some of the other 
uh, structures from total destruction. Uh, it was a Cat 4, uh, as best we could get. Uh, again, they've reanalyzed it uh, uh, recently uh, with some minor changes, actually not much in that regard. Uh, $20 million doesn't sound like much. Just uh, accounting for inflation, that'd be a $700 million uh, storm today. But if you factor in the uh, all the new stuff that exists in the Houston-Galveston area, uh, uh, risk people estimate uh, anywhere from 100 to $200 billion in losses if the same kind of storm were to trek across the area today. Uh, here's the data available to the forecasters uh, back in 1900 east of Barbados. See what part of the problem is? Uh, it remained a marginal tropical storm. Uh, however, it crossed the islands and they had a network of observers on many of the islands across the Caribbean that fed data into Cuba and also into the US Weather Bureau. So there was fairly decent data uh, on, on the aspects of it as it crossed these islands. Uh, in most cases, the highest winds were in the 35 to 40 mile an hour range as it went through there. It did produce a lot of flooding rains in there. Uh, the communication system at that time was not uh, was done through a lined telegraph, and that's how the information got back to people that were trying to do the forecasting. Uh, uh, forecasting wasn't the same as it is now. Uh, the technique that was used, we would call it today, a persistence uh, uh, tempered by climatology, basically a 24-hour a forecast technique. It's been moving northwest at 10. You keep it moving northwest at 10. Maybe nudge it based on climatology. And uh, Father uh, uh, Venus, a Jesuit priest, was an absolute genius on observational meteorology uh, back in the 1800s. And that's the technique that the, the Cubans, and to some extent, the American uh, uh, meteorologists of the day were using. Uh, it hits the Gulf of Mexico. It comes off Cuba at 35 knots. Uh, uh, exits the Florida Straits at 60 knots. A day later, it's 95. Another day later, it's 125. Fairly certain on this because of it did hit ships uh, as it crossed that area, and their ship logs had the reports of that. So it's the track is fairly uh, confident. The intensity is uh, based a lot on a pressure wind relationship. They didn't have the fancy anemometers they do today. Um, Data available to forecasters while the storm crosses the Gulf. Uh, daily weather map series shows the, where little arrows are, where surface observations were available. You didn't have ship-to-shore radio yet. That came about 10 years later. You had just the widely spaced coastal observations. Uh, so you didn't have the ship reports while in real time. There's no such thing as radar then or satellite uh, or hurricane hunters. That wasn't even in the imagination world then. So it's very different uh, uh, aspect of for, uh, what forecasting was done back then as to, as to compared to now. Uh, uh, model data, we, we couldn't live without models, especially beyond 24 hours in our forecasting of hurricanes. Uh, it is the key to our success. And of course, they didn't have any back then. Uh, this is a, a uh, estimate of the storm surge, a slash run run using the best da available data out of the reanalysis. Uh, Galveston Island's down here, and this, this data is the height of the water above grid cell. So where it crosses land, that's the depth of the water over land in there. And, uh, of course, the whole island flooded. Uh, the Bolivar wasn't much population except at Port Bolivar on this side, totally overwashed there. Uh, and a lot of inland penetration in Galveston County, Eastern Harris County. This is the Houston Ship Channel, uh, where up to 20 feet of water would be estimated by the model uh, back then. Houston had a population of about 12,000 way back up in here and did not report flooding, but a lot of wind damage. Uh, Clear Lake area where the Johnson Space Center is, the Space Center would have been totally inundated. And... and uh, uh, that was a big issue back then, but they knew nothing about storm surge. We still have challenges trying to forecast storm surge because uh, it's so sensitive to aspects of the storm. Uh, lessons not learned from Indianola. There were two hurricanes. Uh, the late 1800s had a lot of big hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico, and there were two that 
that affected a town called Indianola, which actually was a port of ent entry for immigration uh, back in the day. The, the first one uh, wiped out the town of Indianola, it's 1875 hurricane, only eight buildings remained, 300 people died in Indianola uh, as a result of that. And that was a pretty good chunk of the population. Uh, they rebuilt it somewhat. They rebuilt that, and then it was whacked again by the much stronger 1886 hurricane. Both of these storms produced up to 10 feet of surge in Galveston and Galveston Bay, over 100 miles from landfall. But for some reason, and I, a lot of people, a lot of authors have written about this, uh, but I still don't think we have a definitive answer. For some reason, the, the, the powers that be in Galveston did not think a similar fate awaited them someday. A big cause of, of consternation. However, uh, well, as we'll talk about, it's not easy to call an evacuation even today. Uh, this was the graphical warning uh, available for a 1900 storm. Uh, they actually flew the uh, tropical, the one flag for a tropical storm warning about a day in advance of the landfall. Uh, I think at the customs house and at uh, at the at the at the port itself for the mariners. Uh, and this system was developed uh, as a result of the Indianola storm. Uh, evacuation plan in 1900. They didn't have one. Nobody had one. In fact, it probably evacuation plans as we view them today really didn't come into focus till uh, around the World War II era. Uh, some considerations, and before I turn it over to Hal, uh, I don't think we should critique warning and forecast. Uh, through the lens of today's capabilities. A lot of the recent uh, books written about uh, hurricanes in the past seem to be critical of the warning and forecast without taking into consideration what I showed earlier of the of the very limited data and stuff available and plus the science that is uh, gone on. And as our guest is going to tell us today how difficult it is to get people to leave, a, a good compliance in some uh, coastal sections is in the 50 to 70 percent range, which leaves an awful lot of people in harm's way. Uh, evacuating Galveston with automobiles, buses, and everything else is a 36-hour proposition today. Uh, it would have been next to impossible in, in 1900. And uh, if people think it's the Lone Ranger for Galveston, there are the tracks of the 1900, uh, 1915, and Ike. Uh, storms, all all uh, Cape Verde Cap, Cat 4 storms uh, that caused considerable damage. The seawall helped prevent the a repeat of what happened in 1900. At this point, I'm going to turn it over to Hal to uh, hit us up with the uh, uh, impacts and uh, some aspects of evacuation to lead into Laura's discussion. Hal? Go ahead and stop sharing, Bill. Oh, yep. Bill, thanks for that uh, insight. Really interesting to look at the meteorology there of the of the 1900 storm, like you mentioned, a Cape Verde storm, Cat 4. Um, just, you know, really interesting to uh, to look at that and to, to look at similar storms as well that have that have um, hit the region. I'm going to share. I just have a few slides here. A very short presentation today talking about a few of the impacts from the 1900 storm. Um, I live on Galveston Island. Bill, you're in the northern part of Galveston County. You mentioned a 78 degree dew point. Man, we dream of that down here on the island. That sounds like Halloween weather to us. Um, here in the island, a little more humid. Like you said, we're lower elevation too. Uh, Galveston Island, the highest point was about 8.7 feet at the time of the 1900 storm. We've raised the island since then. Our, our highest point um, after the grade raising became 17 feet above mean low tide. Well, let's talk a little bit about these impacts. So uh, Bill, you mentioned six to eight thousand deaths, and you, you said there's some uncertainty with that. Generally, we consider six to eight thousand deaths on the island, but uh, these some of these Galveston Bay communities and and getting on the mainland, uh, we often hear the number eight to twelve. I think when we when we get off the island and include parts of the mainland as well, uh, some of the storm impacts. If if you do a web search for 1900 storm Galveston, you're going to see an unbelievable amount of devastation. Whole parts of the city were completely raised, um, just uh, raised as far as destroyed. Just a, a obviously a huge tragedy, huge catastrophe. But I wanted to talk a little bit about sheltering in place during the 1900 storm. As Bill mentioned, 37,000 people lived in Galveston when the storm struck. Generally considered six to 8,000 people died on the island. I mean, the, the 
loss of life is just horrific. It's tragic. But another way to look at this from a different angle is roughly 30,000 people actually survived the storm on the island. So how is that possible when you had a 16-foot storm surge wash over an island that uh, was very low lying? Well, I wanted to show you one example, a building called the Ursuline Academy. This was a, basically a, a cathedral and a convent. It's an amazingly ornate and beautiful building built by Nicholas Clayton, the most famous architect in Galveston's history. It stood at 26th Street and Avenue. And, and again, this thing was not only ornate, it was built like a fortress. Well, when the wind started increasing and the storm surge started washing across the island, uh, people, as their houses collapsed, they found refuge in the nearest large, sturdy building that could save their life. And we actually have a photograph here of Ursuline Academy after the storm. Look in the foreground. It's complete devastation. Pretty much everything on the beach side of the Ursuline Academy was completely annihilated. So if you were in that neighborhood and you wanted to save your life as your house was collapsing, Ursuline Academy was a great destination to go and try to save the life of yourself and your family. And so that's what happened. Uh, the Ursuline Academy there, it stood. It was not washed away, although really almost everything in that part of the city and south of it were completely destroyed. Well, this is an interesting story of how so many people found refuge in this large, sturdy fortress type building. So during the 1900 storm, as your house was collapsing, you might have heard the bells of the cathedral. And that bell, the bell of the cathedral still stands today in front of what used to be the Ursuline Academy. And there's a plaque there on the bell that says the Ursuline Chapel Bell beckoned islanders to the Ursuline Academy for refuge during the 1900 storm. Check this out. 1,500 persons were rescued that night by the Ursuline nuns. So the nuns literally went out, were ringing the bells, bringing people into safety, risking their own lives to save the lives of 1,500 people. Just an amazing survival story there that we have on the island. Incidentally, if you come down to Galveston today and you're looking for the Ursuline Academy, you're not going to find it. It was actually taken out by a freak tornado on the far right of Hurricane Carla's circulation in 1961. So the Ursuline Academy is no longer there, but the bell is, as well as this plaque about the 1,500 lives saved by the Ursuline nuns by bringing people in to Ursuline Academy. So I used to uh, tell people, I've been leading Galveston Hurricane Tour for seven years now, and I used to tell people that this is a really interesting history of how people found refuge from storms by sheltering in place. There were no evacuations for the 1900 storm. People found refuge in the closest sturdy building they could find. And in the first four years of the of the tour, I used to tell people, this is a relic of the past. We no longer have to shelter in place because now we have all this technology. We have satellites, we have radar. We can watch these tropical waves come off of Africa. We'll never be surprised by that again. I believe that until 2021 uh, when I was doing field work in Hurricane Ida in Southeast Louisiana. This is me driving around Metro New Orleans the day before a Cat 4 hurricane made landfall near Grand Isle. Similar track as Hurricane Gustav in 2008. I was brand new to the Gulf Coast. I lived in Southeast Louisiana in 2008 when Gustav came in. As I was doing field work for LSU, there was a mandatory evacuation. There was contraflow. Metro New Orleans was evacuated in 2008 for a Category 2 hurricane coming into Grand Isle. 13 years later, I'm driving around the day before Ida, and there's no mention of the Cat 4 hurricane coming in on the emergency message signs. There was no evacuation, and um, the, the emergency message signs the day before Ida said seatbelts, vaccinations, both save lives. No mention of the Cat 4 hurricane. Why is that? That has everything to do with rapid intensification. So uh, this is really interesting uh, hurricane history, y'all. Over the past seven years, there have been six rapidly intensifying hurricanes, and, and I'm defining rapidly intensification as ramping up at least 40 miles an hour in intensity in the last 24 hours before landfall. And going from left to right, we see Hannah in 2020, Harvey in 2017, Laura in 2020. Ida, the one I'm talking about with New Orleans, it intensified by 55 miles an hour in that last 24 hours before landfall. And, and basically it, it, it intensified so rapidly and gave Metro New Orleans so little notice that as we shared on the on a previous broadcast in recent weeks here in NTWC, um, we had someone from NWS New Orleans say they just did not have time to evacuate New Orleans. You need 72 hours and they did not have it. 
We also see Hurricane Michael in 2018 that intensified by 45 miles an hour in the last 24 hours before landfall. Look in the far northeast there and you'll see Idalia, the storm from last week. This intensified from 80 miles an hour to landfall at 125 in a 24-hour period. We've just added that one to the list. So again, last week, uh, if you were tracking our, our coverage of Hurricane Idalia in, in um, the Big Bend area of Florida, that was also a rapidly intensifying hurricane. Ian, last year, it did hit the threshold of 40 miles an hour in 24 hours, but but not specifically with the 24 hours, the last 24 hours before landfall. So, y'all, this is really interesting. All of these storms are along the Gulf Coast. We know that the water temperatures are out there are near record high, record high levels. Uh, and it's really interesting to compare this list as well with um, in rapidly intensifying hurricanes since 1950. This is a list adapted from the Cat 6 weather blog with Jeff Masters and Bob Henson. Uh, I've just been adding storms to the list. We've seen 11 hurricanes rapidly intensify, at least 40 mile an hour increased in the last day before landfall. The ones with the stars, those six with the with the gold stars, they've all happened since 2017. So again, six in the last seven years. When we go back to 1950, it's only happened 11 times in the past, what, um, 70, 73 years. So again, we're seeing a, a huge, um, this is just blowing up and exploding how many rapidly intensifying hurricanes we're seeing in the last 24 hours before landfall. Uh, Y'all, that's all I had to share here. I just wanted to show a few slides, but again, the, the Galveston 1900 storm had a huge impact here on the coast, but um, something that we've been thinking about in the region is really a lot of these rapidly intensifying hurricanes and, um, and it's a big concern. Do we have enough time to evacuate Metro New Orleans, South Florida, the Houston-Galveston corridor and, and places like that? Um, that's something that we're going to be talking about today on the broadcast. Y'all, you're going to love our guest today. She's done a lot of research on this topic of sheltering in place on vertical evacuations and some of these topics that we really need to consider now in our planning. Our guest is Dr. Laura Meyer. She's a senior research scientist at the University of Alabama and the Alabama Center for Insurance Information and research. She has extensive experience in emergency management and criminal justice research. Dr. Myers, welcome to NTWC Live. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Hal. It's great to be here. Laura, we've been talking about these rapidly intensifying hurricanes and, and people maybe not having a time to get out of harm's way. I know that you've been involved in research in, in some of these big impact hurricanes over the past 10 years. I know you were talking to me about the work that had been done uh, following Hurricane Michael in the Florida Panhandle, uh, looking at really not only the the wind and flood, uh, you know, meteorology, but looking at the impacts of who died, where they were located, and and what that tells us about who's most vulnerable. Could you share with us some things that you learned in this research following Hurricane Michael in 2018? Sure. Yeah, with Hurricane Michael, we focused in on the fatalities uh, as a result of the storm surge. And we were looking at the different structures from an engineering perspective and a design perspective, trying to figure out why people stayed in the buildings that they stayed in. And there were a lot of one-story bungalows built back in the 1960s. And then there were several high-rise buildings, um, newer buildings, uh, newer homes, condominiums, hotels, and the fatalities tended to be in those one-story bungalows. People thought they could withstand the storm surge in a one-story building. And those that were in the multi-story buildings that had stayed during the surge, they just climbed through the building and climbed higher and higher and were able to survive. And so we started looking at multiple storms after that in regards to, you know, what people are thinking in regards to storm surge and what they're thinking in terms of, you know, should they evacuate, should they not evacuate and why they would stay, why would they would shelter in a place that's not going to be conducive to survival. And so we've been looking a lot about that in terms of what their options are, what their plans should be, and, and how to actually handle that in communities facing a storm surge. Laura, what are some different ways that, that, that you've perceived or you found in your research reasons why people may not evacuate from harm's way? It's all psychology um, in regards to why people stay and why people go. It's about their perceptions of risk. And people don't like to change their behavior. They don't like to have to get up and evacuate. They don't want to leave their homes. Um, some people, it's a mobility issue. They don't have a way to evacuate. They don't have a way to get out. They don't have a plan for getting out. 
And so people start to look at this information about approaching storms and try to figure out, is it going to impact me at my location? And if they can justify in their mind that it's not going to be that bad or it's not going to come near them or it's never happened like that before, they tend to stay. And so Bill was talking about the percentage of people who tend to stay. That's because they have made some kind of justification in their mind that they're going to be okay. And the problem now is these storms are changing. You've talked about the rapid intensification. What we find when we talk to people is that they're comparing to previous events. They're saying that, you know, the storms are not usually that bad. They usually weaken. uh, They change path. And so if they evacuate, they really didn't need to evacuate. Many of them have evacuated for previous storms and didn't need to and were not allowed back in. And so they're anchoring and justifying based on how storms used to be in the past. And so now what we're finding with Michael and Ian and other storms is people are shocked that these storms are rapidly intensifying and that they don't have enough time to evacuate. And so most people are you know, staying where they're, they are and saying, I'll evacuate uh, if I absolutely have to. And with rapid intensification, they're not going to make it out. And we're seeing a lot of fatalities from that. Laura, you mentioned that people often are, are looking back at previous storms or where they're saying, you know, I evacuated for two or three storms before and nothing happened, so I don't need to leave for this time. As a researcher, obviously you're looking at the present and the future, but how much do you also look at, in the past at a certain area and say, okay, people may be more prone to not evacuate because maybe there have been several evacuations that 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 they deem as false evacuations or unnecessary evacuation. Do you also look at the past when you're engaging with a community or, or a certain area? I do. And I think that's really important to do to find out what the context is for that region in regards to their previous history, because that's going to have a lot to do with your messaging. When you're messaging that community, if you're aware of that previous history and what had happened in the past, you're going to know that you're going to have to make those arguments of why this storm is different and how this storm is different and why if they didn't evacuate then or if they did evacuate then, what the differences are now and why they really need to evacuate. And that's really hard to overcome. And it really comes down to the trusted sources. You know, who do the people in those communities trust to tell them that this one is different? This one is not like what happened before. So you've got to figure out who those trusted sources are. And they're the ones that are doing the research on that previous history. They're the ones that know, hey, this is why people are going to be thinking the way they're thinking. So I'm going to have to use certain words, certain maps, certain you know ways of arguing and explaining this that will capture their attention. And you're going to have to do it a lot. You're not going to have a lot of time, you know, in terms of the lead time on an event like this. And so you've really got to get their attention with that information. Before I transition over to Bill, he always has some very insightful questions. One last question for you, Dr. Myers. What would you say to other researchers or emergency management personnel who said, we should not even be talking about shelter in place or vertical evacuation. We just need to get everyone out of harm's way. Uh, What would be your response to them? Well, based on everything that we've seen and every event most recently, you've still got people who are going to stay. And those are the people who are saying that, you know, if uh, if I need to evacuate, I will. And so they need options when they get to that situation with Hurricane Ian. A lot of people tried to drive out. It was too late and and they drowned. And so if they had a vertical evacuation option, then they might have been able to get to it. You were you know making the point about that that building in Galveston. That was a point that people could get to and vertically evacuate. And that's what we're talking about now is identifying locations like that so that if you do wait too long, then you can get to those locations and and try to get out of harm's way. It's a fine line because you would prefer everybody get out. And, you know, a bigger issue is it takes a long time to get everybody out now because of our highly populated locations and, and the roadways to get them out and the mobility issues. So we really do need those other options. And those are going to have to come from trusted sources again, because you're you're dealing with that psychology. You don't want to 
have complacency in people in the sense that they would say, well, I'll just stay there here until I have to leave and then I'll go to that vertical evacuation plan. You don't want that to happen either. So it's going to be a real delicate situation of trying to explain that when you absolutely have to. Thank you, Dr. Myers. You're explaining a complex situation very well and and really helping us and our listeners understand. Bill, you look deep in thought there. Any questions for Dr. Myers? Yeah, there's the uh, it, I'm old enough to have seen the the needle swing back and forth on 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 the vertical evacuation thing. It seems uh, after Hurricane Alicia, uh, and then a, a, not too many years after that, the uh, data from the drop zones, and then Hurricane Andrew. Uh, at least from the official world, there was a, a, a reluctance to even talk about vertical evacuation because of the threat that people have. Uh, of, uh, of blowing in the glass and whatnot on the higher floors on that. How are you dealing with that in this in your studies? Well, I, and we have we've looked at that particular you know issue, especially with Katrina. You know, a lot of people did vertically evacuate in Katrina as that water came in, and people climbed up in their homes and structures and got to the rooftops and had no way to get through the the roofs of those buildings. And some people did have saws, some people had axes, and they had to cut their way out. And so we've been talking about if people are going to vertically evacuate, you need to know the safety issues in regards to vertically evacuating. You need to understand about the glass in those buildings and what's going to happen with the wind. You're going to need to have the tools to get through the roof. If you get all the way to the roof and the water's right underneath you, and you've got to break through that roof. So there's a lot of details that are going to have to go with this. And not everybody's capable of doing that. Not everybody's capable of sawing through a roof and, and getting to a rooftop. And so it's going to be a safety issue. It's going to be a risk issue. And people need to think about it and plan for it. And it also would help you know, to really think about a plan that involves multiple people. Because you're going to need a lot of resources to be able to vertically evacuate and to break through a roof if you need to break through a roof and to deal with all the safety concerns in a building like that. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, uh, listening to all that, I, I kind of put myself in the shoes of a planner at a city. I would, I would probably want to identify uh, the uh, this uh, enough of the larger structures that you can get people to, so you don't have to have that, uh, 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 you know, cut through your attic kind of uh, scenario in there. Uh, those kind of houses are probably not a, a safe refuge of last resort anyway, though I have have several anecdotal stories from Hurricane Carla down the coast. I actually had an old guy show me where he had uh, patched up the hole he cut in his ceiling to get up into his attic and then off on his roof as Carla came in. So it's got a history of being followed. The other question I had was the... Uh, uh, do you, uh, in your studies, have you noticed whether there's a difference in the response or reluctance to evacuate, whether you're uh, dealing with a heavily populated urban area right on the coast like a Tampa or, or Houston, Galveston versus uh, a less populated area like the mid coast of Texas where Harvey hit? Yeah, there are some differences. Um there tends to be, you know, kind of a double-edged sword in the highly populated areas like a Tampa or a Houston. You know, people start to look at that and they're like, well, how are we going to get out? Um, I was living in Houston, Texas, when Hurricane Rita was coming. And, you know, people were just like, you know, what do we do? Where do we go? And, um, you know, how how do we get to the, the place that we should actually get to? And so there's a lot of panic in highly populated areas if there's not a lot of good planning. And so a lot of people will say, well, I'll just stay where I'm at. I, I won't go unless I absolutely have to. And then it's too late because then everybody's out there on the roads with you. And then you get stuck like we all got stuck in Houston with Hurricane Rita. And so you have to deal with that. You've got to deal with the number of days out. You've got to deal with people saying, I'm just not going to get involved in all that. It's also important to know that a lot of people are so risk averse that they will leave a large metropolitan area way in advance. So like with Hurricane Rita, there were a lot of people in that region who left two, three, four days out, went all the way to Dallas, went as far away as they possibly could and stayed in hotels and didn't come back until everything was over. And uh, But others will sit there and say, well, maybe I can shelter in place. 
when you go to a rural area, what you're dealing with in rural areas is people have dealt with their locations previously. They may have never seen it flood in those locations. They may have withstood other hurricanes and they think they can take care of themselves. So that's what you're you're up against there is people in these rural locations, less populated locations, feel like they can handle these things. And so trying to get them to understand what the issues are and also understanding why they don't want to leave. A lot of these folks have livestock. They have, you know, property that they're trying to protect. Uh, They don't want to evacuate away from these locations, afraid they won't be able to get back. And if they have survived them previously, they're probably going to stay. This is great stuff, y'all. I want to keep this going. We want to keep the conversation alive because I love overhearing. Did you take a quick break and thank our sponsors once again who make this program a reality each and every week? USAA, the South Potomac Convention and Visitor Bureau, the Weather Company. Tim, do you have any uh, any uh, incoming questions from the audience? I do, and let's get to those in a minute. But I want to hear how's GeoTrack update first, then come back, and I'll answer ask a couple of questions we have here, a couple that I have as well. Then uh, we'll keep going. How what do you have for GeoTrack today? Yeah, you know, with GeoTrek, we love to get out there and explore and document extreme weather and natural disasters. Last week, we were right in the heart of Hurricane Adalia's impact. I was in Steenhatchee, Florida, a community just to the east of where the eye came in. You know, it was interesting and something we may need to look at. As the eye was making landfall, I think I was only about 24 miles from the center of the eye. Winds were pretty light, maybe 25, 30 miles an hour. They it had a very small eye, but it, it looked like it was maybe trying to do an eye wall replacement cycle and, and just ran out of time. I don't know. It, the, structurally, it looks pretty interesting if you plot the, the eye position and where Steenhatchee was. Our winds were not really that bad. The tide was pushing out and the water was pushing out until around the time of landfall. About 30 minutes after landfall, the surge came racing in. Yeah, we got nine feet of surge in two hours. It just came racing in. It was tearing out uh, docking ships, all kinds of things along the river and just a lot of debris rapidly floating north, inundating a lot of homes and businesses. We documented all that. You can follow that on TikTok or you can follow that on our Facebook community called GeoTrek, the community. We had a lot of live coverage there and i'm going to be putting up reels as well this week just going back and looking at what we saw on the ground one of the things as we're talking about evacuation and shelter in place one of the interesting stories that i found on the ground in the path of edalia when the national hurricane center was forecasting a 12 to 16 foot storm surge had it reached the higher end of that that would have been near the state record for florida we were right in the middle of that i was going around the town of steenhatchee It's a small town, about 1,500 people. It seemed like about one-third of the population was planning to stay. And as I talked to different people about the risk and don't don't you want to leave and don't you want to evacuate, what I heard uh, literally very close to 100% of the time, people were referring to their flood history and their experience. We've lived here 40, 50 years. We've never flooded. We're not worried about it. And I was able able to actually show them the P-surge maps, the probabilistic surge from the NHC. There were these elderly women that said, we've been here since 1980. We've never flooded. We showed them the P-surge map, said they had a 30% chance of four feet of storm surge above ground level in their home. And they were actually really receptive to it. But it just showed me just, um, it's maybe a message they hadn't heard before. It also showed me the value. I think when you come in as an outsider, whether you're a weather expert from uh, on media or the Hurricane Center or National Weather Service, if, if you're not living there in their town, I think people are less receptive as well. I, there was one local law enforcement person driving around uh, person to person warning them about the storm. And I, I think that may have great value because these are people that they may know. Um, again, it just it just showed me that people in my experience on the ground there were not relying on NHC forecasts, not relying on experts, not relying on models. They were re- relying on their own experience, but they had never had a major hurricane make landfall near them or to the west of them. And that's what we in the science community know. This is not, uh, one of the people on the ground said there was a flood last year and it didn't come over the hill. I, I don't know what flood they were talking about, but it was not a major hurricane just to their west. So uh, just a lot of times there, this is just the local perception. And I think it, it just, validated the conversation we're having today with Dr. Myers about the need for vertical evacuation and shelter in place. Some of these people will be caught off guard. They'll be blindsided. 
is there an option B for them to uh, to find, you know, if they really need a, a shelter in the face of life or death? We're going to be posting a lot of these reels about what we've seen on the ground again to TikTok. Geo, it's our GeoTrek channel on TikTok or GeoTrek the community on Facebook. You'll see a lot of these reels and a lot of what we experienced last week on the ground in the path of Hurricane Adelia. Thank you, Hal. Fascinating information, and, and thanks for sharing what you saw from the middle of that and the folks who responded and didn't respond. And I think one of the lessons we're seeing, one of the things we're seeing a lot is, you know, whether it's, you know, Steen Hatchie or Fort Myers, the people that get out are the tourists, unless they're thrill seekers, the tourists go. It's the long timers who have been there forever that say, well, I, I can wait. I've seen this before. Let me see where we're going from here. And that uh, brings up a question, uh, Dr. Myers, about, about, you know, the vertical evacuation and rapid intensification. This is a question from online with rapid intensification becoming more and more of a thing. How do we express that, you know, those routes, evacuation routes are going to be cut off very quickly and people who are waiting until the last minute, you know, they're not going to have a chance. So that's why the vertical is going to become more and more important. How do we express that to people? One of the things that we've been recommending after each of our uh, research studies is to talk about what happened in the most previous storm with rapid intensification, how it did cut off the roadways, how it did cut off the ways to evacuate and how quickly that happened and how people did not have time to get out. Um, I think we have to take advantage of the previous events and educate the public about those things and then use that going into the next term hurricane season, prepare the public for the potential for these rapidly intensifying storms and let them know what the impacts are going to be. I think that's the biggest issue because the impacts of a rapidly intensifying storm are going to totally change the plans that the public might have to deal with a hurricane. Interesting. We don't have the the academy that we had in Galveston in 1900 where all the nuns you know, save people. Now what we have is the high rise, you know, golf view condominiums and we talk about the glass break and all that kind of stuff. How do you get the 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 HOA, if you will, of that high rise condominium to say, yes, come on in, we'll be your safe harbor when when if something happens, they're open to all the, you know, all the liability that goes along with that. You know, liability is a big factor, and that's why communities need to look at it in, in, you know, in, in advance of all of this and plan for that. Who would be willing, which buildings, which institutions would be willing to, to serve in that role? Um, in Alabama, for example, we just had a law passed about a year and a half ago called Safer Places that actually eliminates the liability to indicate a location as a shelter. Um, and that was done primarily for severe weather, but it's also for hurricanes. And so there's a lot of policy. There's a lot of law. There's a lot of different things that are evolving to actually work with with that and churches and um, religious locations are always willing typically to be involved with their resources and using their resources going back to the nunnery again and so um, you know identifying those locations and working through those liability um, issues one of the things we've seen in severe weather events is a tendency of people to evacuate out to hospitals and entering hospitals and thinking that hospitals will take them in severe weather and hurricanes. And so they try to vertically evacuate up into hospitals. And that creates a whole policy issue for hospitals. And out in Oklahoma, we actually worked with several hospitals. Um, this was the more Oklahoma tornadoes, the El Reno tornadoes in terms of how hospitals could develop policy to do that better because they don't want to turn people away, but then there's a lot of other issues that they have to deal with. So you have to work on those things in advance and figure out how you're going to do it. And then how do you educate the public on where they are, what's available and how they're able to use those things. And you don't want them to be, you don't want them to be, something that people just count on, you know, the, I'm going to stay behind because I have that, as you mentioned, you want them to go. You don't want them to have that in the back of their minds. It's almost like you have to say, okay, you're still here. Here's an option rather than well, if you decide not to go later on down the line, this is an option. I don't know how you convey that. That's, that's all in the messaging, isn't it? 
It is. And it's at the point at which you even, you know, bring up the vertical evacuation. You know, I think as you get closer in that timeline, when you know you've still got people who haven't evacuated, then you can bring that option up. But once people become aware that that's an option, then it's not going to matter at what point you let that be known. And so, again, it goes back to the trusted sources of the trusted sources saying you're really going to be better off evacuating out, you know, because you're going to have to talk about the limitations of vertical evacuation. There's not going to be enough room for everybody if everybody waits. And that's what happened with the hospitals in Oklahoma. It's like just tons of people would show up and there wasn't enough room and they would show up with their pets and livestock and snakes and everything else. And, um, you know, then there were all these issues. Then we had COVID. You know, what do you do when you've got a pandemic and then you're telling people to go to a particular location and they're all going to be housed together in the middle of a pandemic. So there's just all kinds of things that you have to think about and figure out and and constantly those trusted sources are having to educate about the challenges, the, the limitations, the issues and what the number one priority should be is to evacuate. Fascinating. How got anything more to go? We've still got some time left. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I keep going back to driving around New Orleans the night before a Cat 4 hurricane hit southeast Louisiana. No mandatory evacuation, but the roads are wide open. Any given person could get in the car and just leave. Laura, if you were a broadcast meteorologist, you're not bound, you're, you're not a government employee. You can say more or less whatever you want. What kind of message would you suggest like like they share in a metro area like that the night before a hurricane? Uh, encourage people to, to try to still get out, maybe encourage people where there may be large hotels nearby. I mean, what are some thoughts that, that come to your mind? Yeah, and those are, are, you know, probably our most trusted sources when it comes to getting information as those broadcast meteorologists and the journalists, the media journalists as well. And we've done a lot of research on their messaging and what information they put out. And they can really explain all of that. They can explain where there are options to go and they can explain how people can get there if they don't have mobility resources to get there. And so they can make the public much more aware and also, they're very helpful in who needs to evacuate. You know, that that's the issue is getting people to decide he means me or she means me that I need to get out of this location. And that's what they need to be able to say is who needs to get out. Because when they get serious about it, when they use a certain tone of voice, when you know they give locations that are particularly vulnerable to the impacts that are getting ready to happen, people start to listen to that. So if they have the information about where these people can go, when they need to go, how they can get there, that's really going to be beneficial. And we work with a lot of journalists and broadcast meteorologists, and we've seen a lot of that work being done. And they're very frustrated because they still see the people who don't evacuate. And then they see the fatalities and injuries, and they're like, how can we make more of a difference? And I think they've done such a great job in the last 10 or 15 years of improving that situation. And their desire to make it even better is what is key. They're trying to figure out what words do I need to use? What graphics do I need to use? And graphics are another thing, too. People identify with different pieces of information. Some people, it's what you say. It's what you show them. You know, you were talking about the probabilistic P-surge maps. It's like, you know, some people have to visualize it. Some people also, if they've never seen their location have impacts, really have to be convinced. It might take 3D modeling to show them what could happen at their location. And so having all of those tools and options and knowledge to do that is just fascinating to see them use it and to see that that it's making a difference. You're never going to be 100%. You're never going to get everybody to evacuate that should evacuate because of that psychology. But it is a lot better than it used to be. Laura, do you know of anyone that's done videos going into a place like e where Ian hit, where people said, I also thought I would never flood. I'd never seen it in my 40 years. However, here's what was left of my property. Just to show, I too once thought, I was not vulnerable, but I was very vulnerable. Has anyone done, you know, post-storm interviews with people telling that kind of story? 
They have. And we've done a lot of work with let's capture those videos and show them to the public. I think that's why after an event is a prime time to capture information like that and show it to the public then, because it's still fresh in their minds that a storm has gone through. And even if they didn't have impacts, they need to see the impacts on other people and what people thought and why people stayed and what they would do differently in the future. And then you want to bring those videos back up next season, preseason, when you're trying to capture everybody's attention again, and then also use it in the lead up to each storm. Thanks, Laura. Bill, jump in if you got a couple more questions. We've got about five minutes left. I got about 50 minutes worth. Of- <laughs> I'll give you two. <laughs> I'll, start with, I'll start with a real specific one. Thinking about the, uh, uh, using like commercial buildings and whatnot for, for uh, refuge as a last resort, uh, and they're in an evacuation zone. Wouldn't they be leaving? If who's going to manage the these refuges of last resort? Yeah, and that's going to be an issue. And that's why you've got to set policy. You've got to have plans like that. Over here in Alabama, we have a lot of community shelters for severe weather events, and that's an issue. Somebody's got to man those community shelters, and they're not always manned, and they're not always unlocked. And so you've got to have a plan in place. One of the big things is geolocating these locations for people so they can pull them up on a map, see where they are, see how they can get to those places and see if they're open, see if they're available. And so technology plays a big role in this as well. And we've seen a lot of advances in in that. So that and that is a big issue. And a lot of times what it's going to be is people may just have to get there and fend for themselves is, you know, try to get into a building and try to get up in it. And it may be locked. It may not be unlocked. People might end up trying to break into these buildings, which is going to create all kinds of liability. So you got to think about those things. If people are going to try to get into these buildings and can't get into these buildings, what are you going to do about that? Yeah, the other rather one of the techniques I used to try to convince people why they have to leave is I'll be looking at uh, outside in the parking lot at the town meeting I'm at, and there's it's full of these brand new F-150s, et cetera. And I'll say, yeah, you can stay here and, and maybe survive the flood, but your $60,000 plus truck is toast. Yeah. Maybe you want to consider leaving it for no other reason than to save you the, the agony of losing the truck and having to pay your deductible and get a new one. That'll get their attention. <laughs> Yeah, I think that was that, that that hit my uh, main questions there, Tim. Thank you, guys, and what a what a fascinating discussion today. And I think there's a lot to learn, and um, and and we have learned a lot. And and Dr. Myers, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and what what you've learned over the last few years studying this with us. We really appreciate it. Great insight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And Bill, how great job today as always. Great questions, great uh, takeaways. I think, again, I think we've learned a lot today. So thank you so much. Um, we want to let you know next week, we're going to talk about the anniversary of Hurricane Ike. And Jeff Lindner and Travis Herzog are going to be with us. So a little more history. And by then, we'll be talking a little bit more about Lee as well. We'll see where Lee is seven days from now, hopefully turning out in the open Atlantic and leaving us all alone. But, you know, we just keep hoping, right? So that's it for today. I want to thank our sponsors who are part of this program once again, each and every week, USAA. Thank you, USAA, from the beginning. You've been here in South Padre Island Convention and Visitors Bureau. Uh, we hope to see everybody live in person on South Padre Island in April, the first week of April of 2024. Uh, we'll be there already putting the program together, and it's going to be a good one. We promise. Hope you can join us there. The Weather Company and Weather Boy, also sponsors of this event. Thank you, everybody, for being here today. That's it. Thanks. We appreciate it. We'll see you again next week for another episode of NTWC Live. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of NTWC Live Hurricane Center Podcast. If you did, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. And join us next week. This is NTWC Live.